This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Lorez, and tonight we are going to be discussing the S. Craig Zoller film from 2017, The Brawl in Cell Block 99. Want to start some stuff? I'm more of a finisher. Loca en la cabeza. That's right, I'm loco. Get the fuck out of my crazy way. Today's guest is a fellow Cine State fan, Jacob A. Miller, the cinematologist. How are you doing today? What's up? I'm good. Thanks for having me for this this uh, movie. This this was a lot of fun, this one. And uh, Cine State's been pumping out some quality stuff, so I'm ready to talk. I feel like we've got a retrospective in the making, kind of like what I do with Jerry with the Kubrick films. Now that we've covered Dragged Across Concrete and we're getting into Brawl and Cell Block 99, the film from S. Craig Zoller that led up to that uh, movie that came out just this year. I, I just kind of came across this movie just looking for something to watch on streaming or on like Redbox or whatever. And just the, the title, I guess, caught me. It just has that just in-your-face title that when you watch the movie and then when you look at, like you said, the, the kind of press junkets and the whole... Uh, mystique to the movie it's very grounded in 70s exploitation so when I saw just the title and I saw that Vince Vaughn was in it I was like okay well this could be something interesting but I I wasn't sure and then I watched the trailer to it and I mean it it looked fine it looked kind of just like a gritty kind of beat-em-up movie Uh, nothing too fantastic it looked like to me but it looked entertaining at least and I was willing to try it, and it just again, I was I was radiated uh, by by the title. The title is just what pulled me in, and yeah, I missed out on really all the kind of like press junkets and everything that that you were mentioning because this was my introduction to Cinestate and to S. Craig Zoller. I I missed Bone Tomahawk, so seeing this was a very raw experience with with no foreknowledge of anything. And I got to say, I was just so surprised by what I actually saw. What I expected, like I said, was eh, just just kind of a middle-of-the-pack, gritty action movie with, with maybe some good fight choreography and, and whatnot. But what I got was just probably one of, the, one of my favorite films I've seen in the last year or so. And something that gave me hope for a cinematic future. This movie, absolutely, in terms of the technical scope, and the creativity involved feels much more in line with Dragged Across Concrete than Bone Tomahawk. They feel like closer siblings, I guess you could say. But it's interesting that you kind of were a bit of a latecomer to Cine State because it seems that each of these movies has an interesting lead-up to their release where there's micro-controversies. And the big controversy, I guess, with this was the implication that the the protagonist of the film, Vince Vaughn's character, was a former skinhead, which is is never mentioned in the film. It's not something that's brought up or talked about. This is pure speculation on behalf of critics who maybe felt uneasy about the movie just because he happens to be bald in this film. He's got this giant, uh, weird Robert De Niro and Frankenstein 1994 look to him. You it's know creepy. what? I like this insinuation, though. I, I think it's a lot more fun and it makes makes villains uh, from now on a lot more nefarious if, uh, like, Lex Luthor, oh, yeah, you know he's a Nazi too? So you thought he was bad then, trying to kill people and just and trying to kill Superman. No, no, fuck that. He's a Nazi. So 
I like that. It, so maybe we can have this like revisionist history uh, where we look back on all these kinds of films. Oh, Fast and Furious, Nazi propaganda. At this point, everybody's bald. I mean, Lex Luthor didn't go bald in the Christopher Reeve movies till he went to prison, right? So it might be something to that, joining the Aryan Brotherhood. He had that cotton candy curly hair uh, in the first movie. <laughs> but, I, you know, that was a really non-controversy. It's because he's bald and he has a couple of off-color remarks in the prison yard to some uh, Hispanic uh, uh, prison members. Um <laughs> Uh, inmates I inmates thank you jesus for. christ that's okay there's no um, reason to struggle with that and um i gotta be honest though about that line that's probably my favorite line in the movie oh yeah that might hilarious. make me a bad person but <laughs> and the other thing was that the primary antagonist well maybe not the primary antagonist but the person that we're trying to stop as we get behind the bradley character that vince vaughn plays is an abortionist a rogue abortionist who's going to rip out this child's uh, limbs from Jennifer Carpenter's body and make sure that it's handicapped in all ways possible. And I guess that led people to believe that there was some kind of secret storyline to this film that was parallel to what we were seeing on, on screen. Do you think there's anything to that? Uh, that's a good question. I can only go off of what I've had or what I've read uh, as Craig Zoller say himself, he's been badgered about these kinds of things in the last few months, especially leading up to Dragged Across Concrete. There, there was a there was a terrible hit piece on him, or maybe not a hit piece, but where the uh, the reporter just kept asking him these loaded questions, and how he answered it was as such. He said, "I write what I think is compelling," and now maybe it's something that he might not align with personally or beliefs wise or, or whatever like that. But I mean, people need to remember that good storytelling always comes from primal conflicts, life and death or survival. And yeah, maybe this is touching on some kind of issue that people are contentious about. And it is obviously, but maybe by design or if it's really, uh, uh, I guess, a layered message or commentary of some sort. I'm not entirely sure about that. It's, And if it is, I think it's done well because there's no monologues about it. There, there's no pontificating or soapboxing about the issue at hand. It's just, Bradley just wants to save his kid and his wife, and, that's, and he'll go to whatever lengths possible to do it. Right, and I guess the greater point that I would say about this is ultimately who cares it's a work of fiction and i don't think it's any more or less egregious than joss whedon having a random skinhead knocking over a muslim family's fruit box in new york city at the beginning of justice league as long as it's done well it doesn't matter because anybody can watch the movie and interpret it any number of ways it has no consequence whatsoever but uh I had just noticed, I guess, that with Brawl and Cell Block 99, that talk kind of revved up. Because when it came to Bone Tomahawk, what they were primarily discussing, the problem with that movie, was the interpretation or the portrayal of the Native Americans as these violent savages, right? The, although there They're is actually a, troglodytes. Right, right, right. There's a, they're almost like a weird mutant, uh, monster-esque like subspecies or something. But people still took that to be 
somewhat racially obtuse. And then it built with Brawl and Cell Block 99, and then obviously dragged across concrete has been a bit of a firebrand this year as far as that goes in S. Craig Zoller's career. As you had mentioned, there was a hit piece that was dedicated to him. It was an interview where they were giving him loaded questions. Yeah. So I, I just think it's interesting that in spite of those controversies, there hasn't been any kind of reluctance to avoid potential hot-button issues when it comes to Cinestate or S. Craig Zoller as a filmmaker. There's no fear there that things could be misconstrued. They just decide to barrel forward anyway, which is something that I think Hollywood is really lacking, and generally speaking, creatives are lacking because they're afraid of being misinterpreted or maligned. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I'm the first person that's going to say that as well. There's, yeah, just with the tides of today, it's it's just sad that any kind of slight deviation from the standard by the numbers formula that's going on in Hollywood now is met with this, with this uh, just trepidation or this complete shock, which I guess it's always been like that in a sense in terms of the arts. But it's just because of the way th- uh, the times are now with uh, the internet being able to communicate so many different thoughts at a time and being manipulated for people to get angry at things that on normal days they would find is the most trivial nonsense to not be caught up with. It's, yeah, it's just a little discouraging in one sense that the the norm is just vapid nonsense that that just follows the same ritual over and over again, and we're supposed to nod and love it every time. But on the other hand, it's a really in, uh, encouraging time with what Cinestate is doing, because obviously they're ruffling a few feathers that way. And uh, the executive producer, or if, yeah, that's his title, over at Cinestate, I forget his name, but he seems to be a really... Uh, I savvy guy and he's he's not afraid to take risks and he gives creative freedom to his uh, to his directors and I think he's been very open about listen I, I'm not trying to please anybody I'm not trying to pander to anybody we're just making movies and it's funny that that simplistic of an attitude is met with resistance of some sort and it's it's a good thing in in pretty much every way, but it's also just interesting to see, again, the the reflex that comes uh, from, again, the, the blue checkmark brigade online or certain columnists that I guess just want to get a few extra clicks. So it's a weird time, but it's also a good time to be taking these risks because if you're controversial, everybody's going to hear about you, even if they don't want to. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast earlier today with Brett Easton Ellis and Eli Roth talking about how radically things have changed, but how also it may be a good thing for creatives. Because back in the day, Brett Easton Ellis especially, and I think Eli Roth's period doing this was shorter, but maybe just as explosive, they kind of reveled in being known as these almost uh, daring or repulsive auteurs in, in a way. I guess in Brett Easton Ellis's case, he would be uh, you know, just a great American novelist, I suppose, that would bring out these terrible, savage characters that would do te- awful things. And they would be called, uh, you know, misogynists or 
or or you know the big thing now with the uh literary communities lit bros you know if you get called a bro that's like they're frowning upon your work you know it's oh hold on not as intellectual. can you explain this to me okay so what's what's a lit bro what's like what's the background this? I, somebody who who i guess uh would again indulge in the violence and the masculinity that I, or at least things that would be associated with masculinity so like i just said chuck palinick with fight club something along those lines that would not appeal to a 16 year old female reader so okay so what's wrong with that i don't get it <laughs> it's just uh out of out of fashion with them they, they're not particular fans of it they think it's old hat i suppose or maybe there's other things in play who knows but i was listening to them talk about this and how Things have changed so dramatically since then where before you would want that reputation for being out of the norm and edgy. And now you want to be pure. Like Joss Whedon. Like Joss Whedon. Sure. And look at him. Look at look at all the anticipation that people have over his projects now. Yeah, that lasted long. He had that one Shakespeare adaptation he filmed at his mansion with Clark Gregg and a couple of other actors and Nobody really cared about that. He had the two Avengers films, and then he went back to obscurity. But uh, I, the upside that they were trying to point out was that now instead of engaging in the press and having this public persona, it perhaps leads to more time being dedicated to the work and allowing that to speak for itself, where you're not going to have certain personalities, I guess, and in this case, people who are more in vein of what they're doing, not the Joss Whedon, who obviously can't shut his mouth on Twitter for more than five minutes, <laughs> focusing on the craft and not really worrying about telling people what things are about or maybe what their own perspectives are, which leads to people interpreting these movies or books in their own particular way. Yeah, I, I, it, it is just crazy how... Because Eli Roth really didn't become a household name until the mid-2000s, maybe with Hostel. And I'm I'm not even really a fan of Eli Roth or his work. I, I think Cabin Fever is passable. But it is interesting, now that you mention it, to consider somebody like him, yeah, back when he was in his in his prime, so to speak, and when he was uh, really kind of uh, you know, making his own waves, he was known as, yeah, this grotesque guy. And this is back in 2005, 2006, and that was seen as... Eh, more of a good thing back then. Now it's, it yeah, it's almost completely flipped, and in such a short amount of time, th this usually doesn't happen that fast. And not that I'm an old guy or anything like that, but if, if you look at the trends in film and whatnot, they seem to have about a thirty-year phase, or, or or close to it, depending on maybe what subgenres you're talking about and whatnot. But the overall culture of films seem to have this kind of uniform style to it for a while, but mm -hmm. not within the last, I'd say 10 years. I think just because of the, the way people have changed how they communicate and uh, disseminating information and whatnot, it's just taken a 180 almost in such this short amount of time. But I think again, it's kind of a, it's a good thing now because if, if it wasn't the case, it wouldn't be, I guess as sweet to enjoy the uh, the the films of Cinestate or anybody of their ilk really not to say they're the only good player out there but I'd say they're they're probably the most notable example right now in the in, especially in the indie circuit and whatnot it yeah it, 
the the way things are today, it's it's bittersweet because it has to be that way, but the sweetness of it is is that much better. Well, I was going to say that you're talking about these these generations of filmmaking, and I feel like every generation has its own set of daring avant-garde filmmakers. And this is maybe the closest thing that we've got in our generation to that. And, you know, you look back at the 60s or the 70s, you have guys like uh, Pasolini or uh, David Lynch. Uh, I suppose maybe you could... Well, Cronenberg was more the tail end of the 70s, but so was Lynch. Uh, You know, same goes with the 80s, 90s, you get Harmony, Corinne. uh, Lars von Trier comes into his own as a filmmaker. That's not really a thing. There's not really films that have shocked the the nation or the world from any new filmmakers. It's the same guys who have been at it for the past 20, 30 years. Like, Lars, like The House of Jack Built is probably the last movie that got a real press storm surrounding its controversial nature. And again, that's by Lars von Trier, who's been active since the 80s. And that's nothing new to him. That's his aesthetic. That's his shtick at this point. Having people faint during his movies or... or think that they're covertly misogynistic or he'll go to a press conference and say something uh, outlandish and try to generate buzz that way. Well, let's go on and aside about this real quick. I think that's because of a couple a couple different reasons. One of which is being is that people have seemed to or some people at least have seemed to get a complete case of amnesia uh, before anything before let's say 2015. It it never existed. And <laughs> it, there's just been this weird kind of uh, psychology of of the past that's been completely forgotten, whether it be referring <laughs> historically or to the arts or whatnot. It, so, yeah, that's been one weird side of the equation, at least in America. But the other side of that coin to me is that I think this is happening, especially with somebody like Von Trier, who's been around, like you said, for decades, because... Now, again, with the way we consume information and consume media and entertainment, there's been a lot of people to come out of the woodwork that really don't have the discipline for it and that really don't have a natural passion for things like art, uh, films, or anything like that, that maybe just want to have a blog and talk about shit, talk about pop culture. And that seems to be an issue as well. It's kind of like the whole remark I made about the the blue checkmark brigade. You're getting all these certified people out there that who the fuck are they? We don't know. It's some guy that writes for the AV club or whatever, or fucking film school rejects, but he's been playing with the DSLR for six months. Yeah. There just seems like because there's such a vast library or vast universe out there now of places to consume articles and consume uh, thought pieces now. You just have people that aren't very read up on the past or even on what they're supposed to be read up on that are commenting on these things. But I know I know you said this was more about that we don't have many kind of visionary filmmakers like that today or they're just emerging now. But well, I think well, I, I wouldn't it, say visionary. Just, I would say people who deliberately seek to stir things up with their film. Okay. So uh, the word I, I guess I'm really looking for is um, like, uh, oh, geez. Risqué. Well, yeah, yeah, risqué, but um, there's a particular word that uh, that is not coming to mind at the moment, really struggling with really 
simple one-term vocabulary yes. today. Jeez. Uh, what would you describe Milo Yiannopoulos as? Dangerous. Like his book. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's getting into uh, some hot water at the moment because they tried to book him on Legion of Skanks at some Long Island City club or whatever. And a bunch of uh, D-list comedians have gone out of their way to try and protest this and make sure it doesn't happen. It's like, why why didn't you put that effort in back in 2015 when he was relevant? You know, you're, you're waiting until now where the best place he can get booked is the basement of a of a Mexican restaurant. Well, hey, I mean, that's why we have... Provocateur. We, provocateur. We have no provocateurs. Like Nick DiPaolo. Like Nick DiPaolo, that's right. Exactly. His YouTube film really made a stir. I mean, but, <laughs> but really, I mean, like, we, we don't have too many, at least artistic provocateurs. It's very easy for people to go out there, make a comment on Twitter, and all of a sudden generate buzz and controversy and create a career off of their own likeness, as opposed to putting that into something and waiting and releasing that out to the masses. But you also have to ask yourself, would a movie like that fare well in festivals? Who who are the people that are running these festivals? What what are their internal morals like or their tastes? We don't know these things. So it's it's difficult to say if these people are out there and the movies are just getting buried or if People have gone more in the direction of trying to appease the tastemakers or the critics. Yeah, that's a good question. But I think today <laughs> there seems to be this idea of appeasing the people that you know are going to hate your movie anyway. Isn't there? Doesn't there seem to be kind of a current of that going on? That being way too careful, especially in genre filmmaking, is always a bad idea. You you need to take risks or you need to do something again maybe it's a horror film or like this kind of kind of an action grindhouse film you need to be unapologetic in certain ways but i've i've picked up on this kind of energy out there that seems like a lot of filmmakers are trying to yeah just not get people pissed off and where's the fun in that look at somebody like james gunn who made slither back in 2006 i believe which it has a great cult following for for how out there, crazy, bloody, and it it is. And he's totally one eighty himself. He's made himself this PG friendly, happy. I don't ever make like weird, mean jokes ever again kind of guy. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it's part of it has definitely to get that recognition from from the the awards brigade or whatever. But the other part is to, is to just not get people angry, I think. And again, it's just another symptom of the, uh, the strange times that we're living in. And the great thing about a film like Brawl and Cell Block 99 is it's just a refutation of that. It's, it, it stomps on, that, on the neck of that kind of thought process and uh, caves in its skull, I guess, is a good analogy to make when talking about this movie. Would you say that the Cine State catalog is proof that there is no bias among film critics? Because each of these movies has gotten, for the most part, glowing reviews. In spite of no, I think I think there is there's evidence that there is bias. With, so you with think the film critics? You would say that th these are more of an outlier then. I'd say they're an outlier, but I also would think 
a lot of the praise when I read through reviews and whatnot, a lot of the praise really seems to bite the tongue uh, on part of a lot of these reviewers. Or there, there's always a cautionary blurb in there, like, "Well, while it may not, uh, well, it may not appease uh, everybody's views, or like, or, or it may cater more so to this faction of people." It's good. There's always this kind of cautionary lead up to it. And I think that's bullshit. I think that's uh, ridiculous. Movies shouldn't be contextualized like that. Uh, well, at least not so blatantly as they've been with Cinestate or S. Craig Zoller films in particular. Now, I think we ought to steer away from the dialogue about the controversy i feel like on this show and probably in general we talk too much about the the overly pc nature of things instead of just carrying on uh and celebrating these types of products as we probably should which i think is a a a real proper refutal uh of that i would like to talk about the movie itself and really just the overarching storyline of it and how it i wouldn't say it evolves I would say it devolves, but not in like not in a way that I would say is anti-intellectual. It just becomes more and it just becomes wilder and wilder as it carries on and it turns into the film that you did not start off with. Yeah, when when it opens up, you, you get some real subtle elegant vibes from it and elegant might not be the best word, but subtlety, I think is the word that it kind of starts out with. The interactions with the characters um but it it also paints a very realistic picture in the beginning of Vince Vaughn being this disenfranchised man from the South who's just trying to get by up in New York, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just not working out. And, and it's told in a much more uh, stripped down and sympathetic way of getting inside this character's head and learning exactly who he is. In only the matter a uh, matter of a few minutes, they they paint that picture pretty well. And then, yeah, after, after what, maybe the first act, if you even want to say, it could be after the first 15 minutes, it starts to take a turn. And then, like you said, it just keeps ramping up the layers of fictionalization to this and, and just uh, over-the-top fun to it, if, if you want to call it that, too. And by the end, it's like, you forget you forget which movie you started with completely. It's like you you changed the channel and you you went to like fucking the the, the craziest like Grindhouse Network after having I don't know AMC on for a few minutes. Yeah, it, it's not as stark of a contrast as say from Dust Till Dawn, where it's literally cut in half. That you start out with a crime film and then all of a sudden you're in a vampire horror show. But it it has this weird effect to it where it's almost like S. Craig Zoller is bringing this character through the seven layers of hell with each prison experience just becoming gradually worse than the last. Did you find the ending, which really ramps up the fantastical elements, to be stronger than the more realistic, I would say, uh, crime noir elements of the opening 40 minutes or so? Well, you know what? I have to say yes, and usually my inclination would be no, but with the the, the crime noir elements uh, earlier in the film, 
I don't know. I don't know if it could have held up and really held my attention the same way because yeah, there, there could have been a story there, but I wasn't interested in that story as much as I just was the character. It's, it's an extraordinarily char- uh, character based movie. And rather than get caught up in, I, I guess the typical crime style of filmmaking and maybe having a little bit of it happen in the outside world, as opposed to, uh, the inside world in, in in the prison complex and whatnot. I don't know if it would have held up as much for me because, like you said, it it essentially created like this allegory or or this um, almost a kind of religious, uh, kind of a deeply religious themed uh, film in, in adventure in which this guy is just going through each level uh, of <laughs> fucking torment pain and, and just seeing the absolute worst evil and having to go further to a- achieve good. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Th- th- there was a really, a really interesting just dynamic to that part of the story that I think, even though it goes over the top and, it, and it's great when it goes over the top, I think that was the way to go for this story and to have it stand out on its own rather than fizzle into, I think the void of so many movies that go down the, traditional gangster noir path. What did you ultimately think of the performances in this movie, which again, at times could very easily have fallen into uh, almost a, a wacky or absurdist territory, but stay grounded, even though the elements of the movie start to elevate into, I wouldn't say cartoonish, but certainly more colorful uh, uh, degrees. Well, it's not like a Tarantino film, so it has that much going for it, and that's a definitely a compliment that it's not as such. Uh, yeah, I I thought that was a really interesting dynamic, and uh, I mean, Vince Vaughn he 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 had a fantastic performance here, it, it, just in how nonchalant he is about it, yet how believable he is in this role, and you really do forget that it's Vince Vaughn playing this character, Bradley. You believe. Bradley is, uh, that Vince Vaughn is Bradley in this movie. And the interactions between he and the other characters, like you said, uh, in particular, I'm thinking of the ones that he has with, uh, with the guard in the first prison who he's pretty chummy with, but he ends up having to, uh, having to hurt him very badly in order to save his kid. And it was interactions like that, that grounded me in the movie, like you said, and, I don't know, it kept this very, I guess, strange veneer over the wild aspects of the movie it, that kept you invested. And I think that was by design. It was, yeah, sure, we're going to have some crazy over-the-top action here, but it's still going to be compelling because you believe this guy and you believe this is a real person, who it is. Everybody else is affected uh, equally. These aren't just cardboard cutout baddies and... uh it's because of that that the film is endearing, engaging, and fun, and has the has the payoff that it does by the end. Because yeah, around the horn, everybody did a pretty good job, and I think it was just based off naturalistic dialogue. And then sometimes between <laughs> when Vince Vaughn had to get under somebody's skin, those were insults that I <laughs> I saw as very genuine and uh, yeah, very. Uh, yeah, there was just a genuine naturalism to a lot of the film that 
let me enjoy the crazy aspects. Now, what is your take on the antagonists that are found in these Cine State films? In this, we have cartel members, we have Udo Kier, we have the very cold Korean abortionist. And then, uh, by comparison, you take a look at Bone Tomahawk, you have the troglodytes, and also in Dragged Across Concrete, you have those two wormy guys whose faces you never see, and the Russian. I, I Obviously, I, I would say that Brawl in Cell Block 99 has maybe... I, th- I think you could argue the most colorful characters of the bunch, just because the troglodytes, even if they are somewhat two-dimensional, uh, you know, they're very surface level. There's no real darker motivations or reasons as to why they're acting the way they are, aside from food. You know, in that regard, maybe they could be conceived as uh, good guys in a certain way, you know, but who knows? Uh, what did you think of the antagonist of this film? also in comparison to the other films. Yeah, I like the word you used, colorful, for that. They're memorable because I think, well, for one, uh, some some of it's funny. Like you said, the cold Korean uh, abortionist, especially when he's killed at the end, it's, it's in such a comical fashion. And it's because I think it's tongue-in-cheek, partly, mm-hmm. especially with Udo Kier being the prototypical just like Russian or like Slavic mobster yeah. that, that, yeah, that, that he's been doing, I don't know, the last like 15 years. That's who um, he is. Yeah. He plays <laughs> the same character essentially and dragged across concrete. He's got a very small, you know, there's a lot of overlap in the casting with Don Johnson, Udo Kier, Jennifer Carpenter, and obviously Vince Vaughn. Oh, right. Yeah. And it just shows that I, I hope Zoller uh, brings back Kurt Russell for something because that would be interesting again with, with the clout that they've gotten at Cinestate now to have, wrestle back in another independent feature. So that, that would be cool. But yeah, the, the villains in this movie, I, I think, uh, again, it, it, there's, there's a tongue in cheek aspect to them, but it's because of that, that they're more memorable and they're not just baddie. Number one, baddie. Number two, which you might be able to say for dragged across concrete for the two masked, uh, assailants, if you want to call them, they have a personality there, but they're a lot less distinct than what they are in this film. And I think the reason for that is because Zoller is drawing on those, again, those those Grindhouse films from the 70s with with over-the-top villains, over-the-top action. And again, it's not to say he's some kind of visionary genius that is completely original in one sense, but he just knows, and he has those sensibilities that in a film as such, you need to paint a colorful picture. And it can't be too dreary, it can't be too bleak, and you just need to have you need to have flavor in this for it to work because you're drawing on a very specific kind of movie from a very specific time and there's a formula there that works and at least he knew it because it paid off quite well you know it's interesting you bring up kurt russell i remember when bone tomahawk first came out and what was that maybe 2014 2015 yeah and there was a lot of talk about how oh well he's going to have a big comeback He's going to be in the hateful eight. Quentin Tarantino is about to revive Kurt Russell's career because he tends to do that. He did it with John Travolta. He did it with uh, David Carradine for a moment till he hung himself in tights in Thailand. And uh, and um, uh, he also did that with somebody who is not coming to mind at the moment. But you get the general point here. So Kurt Russell was supposed to have this big comeback because of Hateful Eight. And I remember the buzz around Hateful Eight wound up being shrunken to what people were expecting. I don't think that was a very explosive 
Tarantino film uh, as opposed to others. And really, it was Bone Tomahawk that I think contributed more to reviving Kurt Russell's career and pushing him back into the mainstream where he was able to get that Guardians of the Galaxy role and all sorts of other things. Uh, it just uh, just an interesting uh, note, I suppose, on uh, Cinestate's uh, former films and the effect that they've had on these actors' careers. I would love to see Kurt Russell come back and do something that is a little more tonally in vain to something like Brawl and Cell Block 99 or Dragged Across Concrete. I feel like these two films are distinctly separate from Bone Tomahawk and that they've kind of cultivated a rhythm with this gritty urban nature that these two films have. And I'd like to see that continue. Yeah. There's, there's a visual appeal to that too, but there's also just such a stylistic appeal to that. I I don't know if it's my personal sensibilities or, or whatnot, but there's just something so engaging about a well done gritty crime film like this it just it i guess in one sense it takes you back to great films of the past like maybe dirty harry for instance that have that same vibe though not the exploitation style that brawl and cell block 99 does but again i think cinestate is drawing its energy off of great films and i think it's it's not being dishonest about it it knows where its influences come from and it, it lets them flourish and it it lets the audience enjoy those very qualities with the film itself. I think Zoller at least has been pretty savvy in just being open about his own tastes, his own sensibilities and not going the Tarantino route of, I, I guess just, I don't know, just, just kind of relishing in it in this very just over the top gratuitous way where it's like, eh, yeah, 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 it's cool, but there, there's no movie here. Otherwise I think, Zoller has a good balance here where he's making his very own film. He, he's not trying to copy too much of what's going on, a la Tarantino or something like that. But in the same breath, he's letting the audience get in on his tastes. And for the, the market of audience like me or you that just by nature enjoys those qualities, it's it's just great to see a return to form for for this kind of movie to a structure and a style that was pretty much prototypical for it. Did I detect some shade throwing at Tarantino in the storylines of his films there? Well, the thing is, I Tarantino, I love a lot of what he does. I think he's done a lot for the medium. I mm-hmm. like that he pushes the the actual medium of film like he, he shoots on 35 religiously, but th- there's just been I think there's been an overload of his stylistics, and I think he's gone too far for himself, for his own good, in a sense. I think he's become a cliche of, of his own style in in recent years. And it's not to say I, I haven't liked his recent work. Like uh, there, there was a lot to like about Hateful Eight, but almost none of it had to do with, with the actual story at hand. It had more to do with the actors' performances and I agree. with the 70-millimeter uh, photography. Uh, with Django Unchained, there, there was a lot of beautiful cinematography, and there was uh, I, I, there, there were some good one-liners in there and just good stylistic kind of approaches to, to this like neo-Western. But in the same breath, they're just losing their sting because he's just recycling the same the same cliches over and over again, cartoony violence, 
uh, wacky characters that you kind of don't believe after the first, I don't know, half of the movie. Long-winded monologues that go on way too long and really serve no kind of like narrative purpose or whatnot. And it's just becoming a chore to, to sit through it and be told how amazing it is again. And, I, and again, I love some of his work, like Pulp Fiction, I, I think, does hold up. Um, uh, Jackie Brown is is a great movie as well that draws on like 1970s, uh, you know, Pam Greer films and whatnot and bring, bringing her back. But again, I think, and with this new movie coming out from Tarantino, I did, this is supposed to be about Brawl and Cellblock 99, but sure. this is, it's relevant. Uh, with this new Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it, I mean, it really just looks to me like it's just Tarantino relishing in the 1960s, using that as just a foundation to just throw together a bunch of scenes without a real story and to recreate the Charles Manson murders in an over-the-top fashion, which is going to be so silly, so overdone, and is going to lack the sophistication for me to appreciate the movie seriously. Whoa. And, so, so a lot of a lot of fire going toward that new Tarantino film. I mean, people have been pretty hot about it. Didn't you see that seven minute standing ovation? That yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, that I, awkward I just seven minutes on my Facebook. <laughs> that was oh. one of the most painful things I've ever watched. Oh man, the, the cameraman there give give him uh, a bonus. But <laughs> no, the, the the point I'm making in relation to that is just it, it seems that. Somebody like Tarantino has just gotten so bogged down in yeah what he loves and what he likes that he's he's been supplanting that in place for substantive stories or characters which he's usually great at but Zoller I think knows that the audience w- will appreciate just the right taste of it without being drowned in it and, and just convinced that oh it's great because sixties mise en scene or 60s iconography, which is, again, what I think Tarantino is really just diving into with this new film of his. And so I think it it's funny because Tarantino's like the, the kind of avant-garde guy, the, the rogue guy in Hollywood that, that does his own thing and, and, he, and he, he does it his way or the highway and it's always an event. But on the flip side, I see Zoller through his films as the guy who's actually that guy. And because Tarantino is pleasing everybody, everybody's just eating up what he makes. There are very few critics of him that go after his work like people have been going after Sinistate's work with that touch of animosity. So I think we're seeing that Zoller, at least right now, he could fall off. Who knows? He's that guy. He's the real rogue voyager right now in cinema. That's an interesting dichotomy that... Zoller is the more authentic Tarantino. I think I agree with it. It might be a little it might be too early in Zoller's career as a director to say that for certain, but I, I would say thus far, that's a more accurate statement than not. And I do agree to some extent that Tarantino has become more of a caricature of himself with these later films. And, uh, by any chance, again, we're, we're completely off the subject of the film. Who cares? Uh, did you see the extended edition of The Hateful Eight that was adapted into, was it a four-part Netflix series? No, no, I didn't see it. I, it. It has me intrigued. I might check it out. It's essentially cutting the movie up into four one-hour episodes, which would mean it, it's essentially a four-hour movie, which means there was quite a lot cut from that. 
yeah. I, I'm not as dismissive of the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as, or or at least pessimistic about it as you seem to be currently. I think there's uh, definitely more than hope there. I, I would say I'm actually mostly optimistic about it, but the fact that Tarantino is... I wouldn't say he's going back to the well based off that trailer. In some ways, I would say he is. I'm just a little skeptical that he's working with a new production company, and the trailers to it haven't blown me away like some of his other films have. Like, I remember seeing the trailer to Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained and being like, okay, I'm on board with this. Sold. I'm going to be in the theater opening day. This one, something just feels off about it, to be honest with you. And uh, the, the, the Manson elements did seem silly. I did notice Lena Dunham as one of the family members in the trailer. Did you catch her? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> she fit right in. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting to see where both of these guys will go uh, in their respective paths. But I do think that Zoller, not just because of the fact that he's still, I suppose, early in his career, has a brighter journey ahead of him as a director than Tarantino who's iconic, may have, leading forward. But two things I want to talk about in terms of Brawl and Cell Block 99. I want to get your favorite kill of the movie, and I also want your opinion on the Vince Vaughn dummy whose head explodes, and it's so clearly a prop head uh, <laughs> in the last second of the movie. Okay, uh, my favorite kill of the movie, th- there's a lot of great ones that that's the thing it's so hard because the the fight choreography i've seen some people trash it online i found it very uh very effective i found it convincing i loved the bruntness of it and the you you could just and this is through the sound effects and whatnot too you could just feel all of the of the pain in those sequences and i i would say that was in large part due to Vince Vaughn's performance. He he did a great job in. I'm sure he he did some kind of martial art, uh, arts or boxing training for this film, in just selling it, in just being this this literal Frankenstein monster of a character. And that's another thing we can get into in maybe a few minutes. Uh, I'm seeing some monster movie parallels in this that I find fantastic. But okay, I'll pick a kill for today. Might not be it if I go watch it again soon. But toward the end of the film, when he's uh, confronting the gangster character who I forget I forget his name at the moment and he's just dishing off his henchman at at Bradley and the first one is a uh, is uh, an Asian man and when uh, Bradley finally gets the upper hand on him he stomps his face into the cement floor and then with his foot drags him up drag the cross concrete flips yeah. him over and you see his, his skin has been ripped off his face completely and his skull is exposed yeah i love that i love that that's that's absolutely my favorite murder in the film and it's it, it's well done it's very impressive and like you said the sound is really what sells it and i can't uh, state enough the importance of sound design in a film and they nailed it here now yeah, um and just so was was that your number <laughs> oh, one oh yeah go ahead actually I was just asking if that was your number one death of the film. At least for now, I, I gotta say yes, because uh, other than that, I mean, they're they're all great, but that's the one that when I saw it, I, I, it gave me that kind of shock almost. But but I also laughed at the same time because you know it's tongue in cheek and it's 
it, it's supposed to elicit that reaction, and that that one genuinely did it for me. And the Vince Vaughn exploding head. Oh, the, now, <laughs> the Vince Vaughn exploding head. It so, seems like Cine State has one sh- one really gratuitous, over the top, crazy shot in each of their films. I can't really think of the the one for Bone Tomahawk. Maybe it had something to do with Matthew Fox's death. I I, I wait. No, when they when it. they split the guy in half. And he, and he, yes, yeah. yes. That's it. That's spot on. And then, obviously, in Dragged Across Concrete, I think the go-to is Jennifer Carpenter's death, where her hand and then her head are blown to bits in the bank. But in this film, the perhaps uh, most cartoonish death is the protagonist of the film, Bradley, who faces a firing squad in the closing moments of the film. And you can see that they really just put a potato on a mannequin and then blew it up. (laughs) It really sells that grindhouse, that 70s over-the-top violence feel of the movie because that's something you would absolutely see in like Dawn of the Dead or or just any 70s horror crime film. Listen, I liked it. And the reason being is because they stay true to their form. They stay true to their style all the way to the end. I saw people trash it online and they said, well, what, why the hell does does that happen? It looks like shit. Why didn't they just, like, CG that? And it's like, uh, not the point, dude. The point was yeah. exactly the opposite about this film. Listen, it's drawing off the, the stylistics and the aesthetics of the 1970s, even though it's set in the present day, mind you. So uh, remember that when you watch this film. You're not seeing a, a film that's trying to be the 70s. It's just, it's building off of the, the form of the 70s. But... The reason being is because that would also throw me off at the end. You you get all these crazy practical effects. There might be a few digital tricks in there, here and there throughout the film, to just touch up a couple things. But it's very practical and hands-on throughout the entirety of this film. And if they were to just blow them away in what would really be almost in uh, not very silly or very memorable way, with a CG shot to the head or whatever, that would that would kind of deflate me. I don't, I don't know how I would react to that. And you got to think, they're saying, all right, we need to end this movie that's been crazy for two hours. We need to end it one way, and we want it to be memorable. How do we do it? You shoot a potato, and you just paint your like, pencil on Vince Vaughn's face. And that's that was the way to do it, because people remember it. It's it, Not everybody likes it, but... It's an effective ending that sticks with you. And yeah, so I commend them for that. If they went the other way, that would have been just ugh, would have would have almost spoiled the the rest of the movie. I completely agree with that. And you know, people want CG in moments like that. And I would much rather a really cheesy vintage looking shot of gore that everybody knows is kind of silly than something that's going to look like Steven Dorff in Blade when he gets cut in half and the blood flows. And it's like, a again, a Dreamcast dra- a graphic when, <laughs> when, when he comes back down. And it's, you know, it looks terrible. It did not age well whatsoever. And I couldn't agree more with you that this is the perfect pin in the film where it fits the whole tone of the movie and everything you've come to know, especially within the last hour of that film where it has taken more of a grindhouse turn. It doesn't betray the, the ethos that is found within the movie. 
Yeah, not to mention, I think one of the things that's great about these movies so far in their library is they trust the audience. There, There's a lot of trust there. And like you said, maybe it doesn't appeal to the quote-unquote normie crowd, if, if that's kind of how you want to put it. But at the same time, what what great films tend to do that? I would argue that most films that try to cater to that kind of regular crowd, just a commercial crowd, they never truly end up being anything other than okay or just good. So I think there's a relationship here that Cinestate is trying to build with its audience. Yeah, like you said, it might not be the most commercial or profitable series of films so far, but they're really connecting with, I think, people that are passionate about these kinds of, uh, these kind of voyagers cinema, if you will, kind of in my, in my reference to Zoller's style. I think they just, they have this kind of relationship with the audience that they, they're going for cinephiles. I guess that's the, that's the quickest way I can say it, but it's not to say nobody else could enjoy these films as well. Because uh, my girlfriend watched this with me. She's, not the most like cinema savvy person out there. She's maybe right. a step above Normie, but this was even in her wheelhouse as well. And I think anybody that just likes a good kind of beat em up movie is going to like this, but they might just be surprised by some of the stylistic aspects that are, are, are pulled off here. But I think the more people that are re- recruited to watch Cinestate films like this, the better. Well, I think it plays back to something you had said earlier where directors and Filmmakers at large seem to be more concerned than usual about their detractors and trying to make their films appeal to their most vocal critics or people who aren't going to like their movies regardless. And you can tell with these films that there is no regard for that audience or trying to appease that group, which I guess in this case would be your average filmgoer who pays $70 to go see an Avengers movie at the theater on Friday night. You know, they, they know who their audience is. They've scoped them out. They're not worried about alienating the trust of them. And they go, they go hard in the paint when it comes to these movies and tailoring them to their audience. And maybe that's the problem in general right now with filmmakers is that they rely so heavily on the studio that they don't really have a base to use as a net, I suppose you could say, for when things go astray or go awry. You know, they don't have that comfort or that luxury of being like, okay, well, I know who my people are. I don't have to worry about Paramount ushering this out into 50,000 theaters and selling this to, you know, 16 to 21-year-old boys or, or girls or what have you. You know what I mean? Yeah, and the other part of that equation is that Cinestate, at least so far, has really gone the independent route in doing limited releases and then they just jump right to video on demand or like Redbox services and whatnot. So the people can see these movies right away and, and pay, give them their patronage, which I'm happy to do that. And therefore circumventing the big distributors like a Paramount or like any kind of gatekeeper out there that can say, Oh, well, yeah, well, this film is great. We'll, we'll release it to 20,000 theaters this weekend, but you got to clip that scene because 
oh, our investors from this corporate interest might not like it. So they're doing a great, great service to 21st century or really 2010s, 2020s independent cinema in that they're circumventing that distributive process as well and just dishing it straight out to to the consumers because like you said they're savvy enough to know they do have an audience and it might not be one that's the most marketable so to speak but at the same time they're getting the return on their investments they shoot with fairly low budgets i believe and with that kind of formula i i think as long as they keep that formula up they're going to continue to churn out success after success I mean, what what is the most marketable audience to make your money back and then some? It's what, 20-year-old Chinese women? <laughs> There's only going to be so much material you can roll with that's going to appease that audience or appeal to that audience. Uh, they're somehow making their money back with these films. And I'll tell you what, I don't think a movie like Brawl and Cell Block 99, which is tamer than Dragged Across Concrete and its controversies, could get made in a studio system. I actually listened to an interview on WBUR, Boston Radio, which is like the NPR station, with Dallas Saunier that they were replaying. It was from 2017, right when this movie came out. And he was taking calls from detractors who thought it was like a Trump movie or something. And they were like, this is disgusting. You're making movies for Nazis, you know, all this stuff. And the interviewer had asked Dallas, do you think this movie could get made traditionally and he apparently approached somebody who works within the system who he is close friends with people who have like produced black panther movies like that and they would say here you, the movie's good here's what you would need to do in order to get a conventional release with it you'd have to cut this and this and this and you'd have to trim this down here and it's just like you're compromising the movie in that case and one of the main benefits that i love about these films, maybe reluctantly so in the moment, is that there is a much slower pace to them than your average Hollywood uh, yarn. Sure. Where it, it has a novelesque approach of setting up who these characters are and, uh, you know, luring you into one storyline, kind of doing the whole Simpsons bit where it starts out one way and then you wind up in a completely separate place. And this is obviously the, the prime example of that. I think Dragged Across Concrete does that as well, where it goes off in a direction that maybe you wouldn't have predicted based off of the premise of the film. Uh, Bone Tomahawk is a little more straightforward, but it is definitely uh, splintered in that regard as well from before they leave the town and venture out, and once they do stumble upon the troglodytes. Um, But my point was, you're not getting movies like this anywhere else, and they feel like a complete experience. Yeah, and it's just a symptom of of how how much gatekeeping goes on in the industry today and probably how it's been for years. But if any, if there's been a time where it's been egregious at all, it's been lately in the last few years. And yeah, it just, it just goes to show just how corporate cinema has become. Well, not real cinema, but the cinema that we're given to on a mass scale. And I suppose you can expect that when anything is peddled out mainly for profit or mass-produced, kind of like in the Hollywood studio complex. But it really just goes to show that the in these times, it's just become so corporate that the outlier, like Cinestate, is, and again, I, I, 
I'm giving them high praise, but it's because, guys, it's because it's due. It, it's just praise. I'm not trying to get a job with them. Totally not. Uh, State is just more organic, and it's it's more natural, and it's it's actually truer to what cinema really is than what the big distributors are putting out. The big distributors are putting out commercial products, not not films per se. And I know that's a kind of a dichotomy that you have an issue with, but maybe that's another conversation for another show or something like that. But to put a pin in that really quick, it's just that the corporate aspect of, of, of Hollywood or cinema, like you said, has those hurdles to go over. Oh, if you want it released, you have to get rid of this because it's more a profit-based system. Whereas Cinestate seems to be peddling out things, making their money back at least, but it's much more film-centric and much more focused on the style and the art and the, the aesthetics than, I guess, the commercial payout. Because if they were, I feel like we wouldn't be seeing these films in, in the same light. I agree. And I think the main difference between the two is those corporate films are being decided by micro communities of people behind the scenes, which essentially vote on which ideas might be best to go forward with to protect the integrity of the profit that will be generated here, as opposed to these movies, which are all based upon the individual vision of a singular filmmaker, uh, in this case, S. Craig Zoller. And I think that that's maybe the reason why we have such a stark contrast between the indie film scene currently and what gets ushered out to theaters, and also why there are not any provocative filmmakers, at least in this particular decade, uh, that have sprung up and become fresh, I suppose. Well, the weird thing is, let's do it. I got, I got to mention his name. It, it's been too long. So the idea of a prov- provocative filmmaker to the corporate crowd and to, to maybe the normie crowd is somebody, well, like Jordan Peele. And he's, he's got a lot of great ideas. He has, he has a magnificent eye for aesthetics. I just think he has some issues. And I think one of his main issues is that he's a guy that he's paying off what people want to see in a slightly different way. All he, he, he's essentially, he's, he's showing people something they want to see and not really being a, a real provocateur. And what's going on with somebody like Zoller is that he's ruffling feathers because he's going a little bit against the norm and going at it in a very gritty and individual way. A la Jordan Peele, he's just the other side of the coin. So in one regard, we're told or we're shown that, oh, well, the indie, the indie Voyager today, it's this Jordan Peele guy. He's pumping out all these thought piece movies that, that are really getting people on the edge of their seats at the same time. I, I don't believe that to be wholly organic. Uh, I, I think there is some corporate manufacturing there because Peel himself has gotten so deep in bed with, with the corporate side of Hollywood. And it's, that's not even a slight at him that it's not a criticism. It's just, it's just how it is. He's very marketable now that you can really tell his movies are playing to a certain formula that's being approved. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. His films sure might have their own risks that he, that he takes, but it's going through that process of gatekeeping and through that process of vetting that the studio system is really uh, hearkening onto the medium itself, whereas Zoller is somebody that is subverting that 
and that's why we're getting the kind of shock and awe effect from his movies, which, which oddly enough, I don't even think are that shocking. I just think they're good movies with some unconventional narratives, if, if you even want to say that. So I think that's an illustration of kind of where cinema's at independently right now. If you think back to the 80s, controversial films of that period of time are really... I, I wouldn't even say that they are really that controversial. I'm thinking uh, particularly of Body Double. Have you ever seen Body Double, the Brian De Palma film? No, I haven't. That or, uh, you know, Dress to Kill. Brian De Palma really got into the uh, things that would get you canceled nowadays with his films, where it's just like we have transgendered killers, we have... Uh, uh, you know, Cuban uh, refugees bringing in Coke with Scarface, and we're going to have a white guy play that character. It's just, you know, I don't think that these movies are really that scandalous when you look back at the past. And uh, it does play into that uh, selective memory that has absorbed uh, modern critics and filmgoers and people who are just interested in film. And oddly enough, that... even filmmakers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's... I, that that conversation could lead off into a couple of different places, but I, I, I think we should probably put a pin in things for tonight on Brawl and Cell Block 99. I think this was a very enriching uh, discussion about the film and what Cine State is doing and what Hollywood at large is undergoing at this time. Hopefully it comes out of it and evolves into something interesting and strange. We'll see. Um, Jake, do you have any final words about the film? I was going to ask you, actually, where you think this film might land contextually in, in film history. Uh, how, how do you think this is going to live on? What kind of shelf life do you see? That's extremely difficult to say. I, you know, I, I can't really, I can't put modern films or, or recent films from like the past three or four years, especially into any sort of context as far as that goes, because let, let's take a look at a movie like say the place beyond the pines or even Spring Break or something like that from 2013. Both very well done movies that were, you know, uh, they challenged the norm of what filmmaking was at the time. And certainly narratively with The Place Beyond the Pines and what they opted to do with the Ryan Gosling character in that film. And then I hated just, that movie. I, <laughs> I, I think I recall you saying that, uh, but they just disappear after a while. And I would even say the same for uh, something like Birdman or or a lot of these celebrated films from only three or four years ago just go off the map and they're not revisited. They're not rewatched. Well, I, I might I might contend that that's because they're they're being just lamb well not lambasted but lauded by critics maybe because they're they're paying homage to all the right things where. Birdman is just, again, another celebration of how great it is to work in Hollywood and how important it is to be an actor and whatnot. Uh, now, yeah, it's a technically really good movie, and I, I, I guess I liked it. I wouldn't say I loved it, but something like Brawl and Cell Block 99 is something way more genre-heavy, way more thematic. In it. It's, again, it's like deeply kind of almost religious uh, subtext there that... I think enriches it as a story, a story and makes it more memorable. And you don't have that with a, with a lot of these, again, kind of lauded, oh, future classics. This is more right. like a hole in the wall 
where I think people stumble upon it after years and they love it. I, th- I think, I guess what I'm saying is it has that potential to be that movie. I think so, but it also depends on how that audience grows. I think, I, you know, Birdman and uh, maybe Spring Breakers were poor examples of that. I think a more niche film uh, genre-wise would have been better. Something like the 2015 Alex Garland film Ex Machina, which was praised for its uh, uh, different approach to science fiction and handling AI. And everybody in unison seemed to have loved that film. And then it's forgotten. Nobody really talks about it anymore. Nobody brings it up. And it's not because Annihilation got mixed reviews. It's because I don't know why. Maybe there's just not an audience for that movie right now. And I think Cell Block might might start to generate more of an audience depending on how successful Cine State becomes over the next couple of years. I don't know what they have lined up for 2020. I'm certainly interested. But they essentially have to ensure that there's some blood in this genre so more people more spectators can come in and start to analyze their filmography at large through newer films well good thoughts i mean yeah i yeah i guess with all that in mind it, it will be interesting to just see where this goes i guess my opinion is just that based on again how heavy it is in genre and the fantastical elements the the and just the stylistics i think are are just recipes for something that i think will have a good shelf life but i guess we'll check in in 20 years (laughs) 